Welcome to our next episode of the Five Moments of Need Performance Matters series. This is Bob Mosier, one of the many co-hosts you'll meet throughout this series. So friends, are you trying to learn more about the Five Moments of Need? Maybe how to design for them, implement for them, measure them and even sell them as an approach to your enterprise. Well, in the Performance Matters series, we will help you better understand the theory and best practices behind this powerful methodology and offer proven ways to put the five moments of need into practice. All right, friends, welcome back to another Performance Matters podcast. Bob Mosier here is introduced in the introduction. So great to have you all here. We do so hope that you are safe and well in these trying times, but we do appreciate you tuning in. Please let us know through feedback on the podcast site and such. Anyways, we can help and continue to offer information that is of service and value. We are excited today to welcome a dear friend to this podcast and an international friend, actually, and learning leader over in the UK area, Sam Allen. It's great to have you here. Just such great work, my friend, and the work that you've done in this area. And so we're anxious to hear a bit about your journey and how things are going. But we appreciate you being here. Hope everything's safe and well. Thank you. Yeah, great to be here, Bob. I'm as well as I can be, and so is my family. So in these trying times, I think that's as good as it gets, really, isn't it? That is. That was a great answer, my friend. And we continue to hope that that remains the case. So, friend, I don't do the introductions formally. Don't read a bio kind of thing. Kind of lets us get into the dialogue of the conversation here. So give us an overview of your journey to this point in L&D, my friend, and, and really kind of how you've arrived in this mindset, because you're a very performance-focused uh, L&D professional, which I love about the work that you shared and the examples you've done. Give us how you got there and the journey to this place. Sure. So and I think it's been a relatively recent shift for me, which I'm sure we'll kind of get onto and talk about. My journey into learning and development is probably similar to a lot of people's in that I, so I was in an HR role initially. I got a master's degree in HR management from Coventry eight or so years ago. And I was in a role in an organization called Home Retail Group, yeah, mm -hmm. who at the time were a massive nationwide retailer, owned a number of different kind of uh, retail brands. And I was in an HR role that had some kind of level of learning and development responsibility. So I ran workshops on things like change management, and but it was all your kind of traditional face-to-face -face workshop delivery programs, that kind of thing. But I absolutely loved it and was told by so many people in senior positions, you're, you've got a natural aptitude for this, you're a fantastic kind of trainer, you should think about a career in learning and development. And at the same time, a junior position came up. Uh, actually, it, sound, it, it sounds very big. It was a junior position at the time, but it was looking <laughs> after the rollout and training for Office 365 for the whole <laughs> organization. So I was kind of in charge with putting together a small program of kind of training that everyone could access and go through. And that was my kind of real introduction to learning and development. The, the position that really kind of got me, I, I was kind of thrown into the deep end really. I, my manager at the time, I think really kind of just took a punt on me because she liked me and, and, and saw <laughs> some potential. Um, but I got a kind of learning and development business partner role supporting Argos, which is a retailer that was going through a really interesting transition from a catalog, traditional catalog retailer to a digital retailer. Mm. And I was supporting three functions that were really at the kind of coalface of that transformation. So the digital e-commerce teams, the marketing teams and the IT teams. And I looked after the whole end-to-end -end learning and development piece. So everything from the kind of the budgeting, the leadership development, the digital learning, everything. And of course, my go-to was 
face-to-face -face learning? What workshops can I run for people? What, how can I package them up so it turns into a program? But I, it, that was the role where I probably started to think about learning and development differently because I was sitting at the leadership table with people who I started asking questions like, why are we doing this? How do you know that people need these workshops? Is there another way we could do it that's a bit quicker? You know, these guys were agile in the true sense of the word. Sure. They're churning out huge kind of changes to the website in a week. And there was me suggesting a, you know, 12 <laughs> management program for six people. Uh, and then the, the other six people who might need it would go on it next year. You know, that kind of thing. So yep. from there, I, I definitely started to think more around experiential learning how can we kind of bring learning to people in their roles how can we kind of get people practicing things and I guess I didn't know it at the time but that was where my shift in thinking came to looking more at performance focused learning because I was thinking more around well what what are people having to do and what are they struggling with rather than what do people need to know and what can I kind of teach them I guess kind of my ego left the role a little bit and I got out of the spotlight and saw it more on what do these people really need? What are they struggling mm -hmm. with? Um, from there, I kind of got a role at Whitbread, which was a large hospitality firm in the UK. Again, that was a really helpful role in kind of moving me more to a kind of performance focused mindset because I was supporting, I guess, kind of hotel and pub workers, basically. So these mm -hmm. guys who were so busy the best way to support them was with giving them things that would just help them do the things that they were struggling with when they were doing them. So again, we were starting to experiment with things like providing learning at the moment of need and at the moment of application and trying to break things down and creating kind of mini workbooks on the, the tasks that they'd have to do in their first 60 days. And at the time, I remember thinking this feels all very functional and task. Where's all of the kind of conceptual stuff? Where are we going to start changing their mindsets? and but as soon as you got into those pubs and saw how they're running, the lack of time they all had, that's when you started to see that the need for learning that they had was when they faced a problem, they needed something then. And actually, I grew really frustrated with the fact that we were doing some things in that way, but we still had the nine month program that everyone went mm. to. When in fact, actually, there was a two week, essentially a hold that they went and held a position, a, secret, a pub manager position for yep. two weeks. That was when they did all of their learning. That was when they needed help when they were there. We sent them to a pub where there was someone who really knew what they were doing, whose role specifically was to hover and help this person. That's when we saw the real learning happen in that kind of two weeks. And the rest of the nine month program was essentially, <laughs> you know, a waste of time. So from there, I kind of thought, well, look, I really want to do learning and development differently. I've really kind of almost become a little bit kind of disengaged with face-to-face -face learning I still see the value in it um, sure. at the time I'd really kind of started to think well why why do I do this I'm struggling to get people to engage why is that most of the time it's because they either didn't need what we were teaching them at that moment yeah or they would they needed it six months ago and found their own solution or they didn't realize that they needed it so they probably did need the help that we were giving them but they didn't realize it and so they weren't motivated and they weren't in the right frame of mind so mm -hmm. At that point, I left Whitbread and set up on my own. And that's when I set up Insightful Learning Development with the sole aim to try and do things differently and experiment and work with clients who are open to different things. And over the last, I guess, kind of two and a half years, 
that journey has taken me to kind of where I am now, where I work with my colleague Louise, and we support mainly small, rapidly growing businesses. We prefer to support businesses who don't really have any learning and development or don't really know what good learning and development looks like. We support <laughs> organisations who either don't have the capacity or the skills internally to deal with some of the challenges that they're facing. We essentially kind of go in and become an extension of their organisation for a short period of time and work with them to really understand what it is they need and try our hardest to create solutions, a range of different solutions that meet those needs. I'm still early, I would say, in my kind of transition to becoming more performance focused. There are projects that I've got live now, which I started 18 months ago, which are a million miles away from performance focused kind of learning and development. But I know that they are now. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. You have the context, which is really brilliant. And, and, and so I want to talk to you on two levels, Sam, today in our discussion. One is a bit more about L&D in general, because I really, really done a nice job, I think, in championing the cause. You know, you turned my head months ago when I saw one of your LinkedIn posts. It was very early in the, in the pandemic. And you really challenged L&D to define its purpose. Why do we really let's pull all the ID stuff back, all the methodology stuff back, all the technology stuff back and let's define as an industry or as an individual in L&D, what is our purpose? And you got some interesting results from that and some very interesting answers from that. What did you learn from that discussion? And, and what is your answer to what is the purpose of what L&D should do? Yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. I think the first thing I learned was that across the industry, there isn't a consistent view of what our purpose is. So you have some people who are really performance focused, are almost kind of performance consultants and see mm -hmm. the development as performance consultants. You have other people who are at the other end of the scale and think that's not our job. Our job is just to create learning content when somebody tells us there's a need for it, to trust that the need is there. Mm. And you have other people who think it's more around kind of nurturing talent and, you know, helping the individuals progress. And you have other people kind of almost at the other end of that spectrum who think it's all around kind of organizational capability. And it's much more kind of, I guess, clinical and not focused on the individual. But how do we build capability that we need? And to kind of give you a slightly woolly answer, I think we're somewhere right in the middle of all of that. So mm. for me, I think learning and development's purpose in an organization is to help people perform in their roles effectively. First and foremost, that's it. Yep. Then it's also about it, it helping them to prepare for their future roles, whether they're in the organization or outside. And that kind of, I think, takes us a different approach than the first part. And, and it's more around them as an individual. And I think broadly speaking, all of this has to line up to the organization's strategy and where they're going so that it is about building capability within an organization to help it achieve its achieve its goals. I guess for me, that means that there are a number of different activities that take place within learning and development. And I think that's why learning and development struggles so much sometimes, because mm. there's a massive range of skills and experiences that are called upon with just those three things that kind of I've talked about there. And yeah. quite often, depending on the size of the organization, learning and development might sit with one learning and development person, or it might even just sit with the HR guys, or there might be two yeah. people, one person who's like the digital, you know, the, the techie one, and the other one who's the more traditional, the trainer. I guess that that's where I think learning and development sits, somewhere within that kind of context. Hmm. 
the title of this podcast when we first discussed it a while back was, and we had some of our early discussions, was around why does this seem so hard? Hmm. It's, I've been at it for 10 years now, and it becomes clearer and clearer to me that what you just described is our purpose. And if we're not doing that, why invest in us at all? Hmm. Um, it just doesn't get to the ends that I, I think we want to. Why do you think L&D struggles with this so much, Sam? I mean, you know, a lot will say, and I've had this argument that, yeah, no, 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 you know, we're performance focused in L&D, but in the end, when you look at the deliverables, it's still ultimately designing around knowing. I love the way you said it earlier. We get this a lot in our podcast. It's the knowing shift to the doing shift, which sounds yeah. so simple. Yeah. And again, a lot of L&D people would argue that that's the end. We, you know, these classes for eight weeks or these onboarding things for two months, it gets people to performance ultimately. Mm -hmm. I think we're talking about something different here, though, aren't we? In in, in what you're how you're looking at this. Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think. The traditional approach might fill somebody's head with the knowledge of how to do something, but it's just like in any other walk of life. You can't sit in a classroom and learn how to swim and then just jump into a swimming pool. You can't read a book on how to ride a bike and then just get on a bike and ride it. And for me, there needs to be a genuine shift to realise that that's exactly the same when it comes to everything else that you do in, in a work environment. From managing people and having feedback conversations, to budgeting for the first time, to using technology. I think for me, there are a number of reasons why, it, myself included, L&D find mm -hmm. this. I think firstly, it takes a number of different skills that are potentially lacking within the industry, or, or at least, you know, they kind of have gone through waves. So yep. it, take kind of performance analysis. For me to, when I started learning more about kind of performance analysis techniques and methodologies, I looked right back to kind of like the 60s and 70s and and I was thinking, okay, so there's, this is all there. So why do we not now do it? Yep. Uh, and I think David James in his podcast talks a lot about a shift a while ago to kind of being more behavioral focused and and that's meant that there's been less focus on kind of performance analysis. But I think there is a skill that I know a number of people in my learning and development network don't have, and I would include myself in that because I'm still going through the learning journey, is a really, really high level of skill of performance analysis. So yep. understanding what somebody needs to be able to do to perform a task well. So I think where L&D do traditionally kind of go to and do things right, if you like, is if it's something like kind of technology training. But that's because it's really black and white. There's a way to do it and there isn't and it's instructional and everyone thinks, OK, so how can we you know, let's give them a guide so that as they're doing the thing, they can look at the guide. You know, it's in its most simplest form. That's exactly what we're talking about. Yep. But then it's when it gets more complicated, complicated as a subject. It seems that we get woolier and woolier in our analysis of what the problem is and the solution yep. that we deliver. So I think it takes skill. I think also a different kind of skill in kind of influencing people. So quite often we'll get the requests of, can you do X, Y, or Z workshop for me? And our audience and our kind of customers know, or at least think they know what they need before they come to us. I always use the analogy of learning and development versus and IT. So we don't go to IT unless you're very techy, we don't go to IT sure. and say, okay, um, here's my laptop, it's broken, what I'm gonna need you to do is go in and debug this and go, we just say, fix this for me, please. And then yep. the IT person goes, okay, let me run a diagnosis on this piece of equipment, understand what the problem is, and then I'll fix it. 
Whereas in learning and development, what we get is essentially those people coming to us and saying, here's our problem and here's what we expect you will need to do to solve our problem. And so we're already up against it unless that solution has been formed off the back of really good performance analysis. Yep. And it very, very, very rarely has. So I think that that's another thing that makes it difficult. For me, though, the biggest shift I found in my own thinking that helped to start to make it easier was just to think about the distance that I'm operating from the context of application in everything. So how far away am I from the context of this skill or this thing being applied? Am I in both the analysis? So am I speaking to the people who are actually doing it? And am I asking them directly about it? Am I watching them do it? Or am I asking their line managers what they need? Or even worse, their their line managers, line managers, what their whole (laughs) department needs? Am I designing content then close to the context of application or am I designing it away from it so they're going to have to go back to it and I think that's where I've learned a lot from the work that you and Con do and the whole idea of the moments of need and thinking about kind of designing learning for different moments of need just breaking that down to think yep. about okay so if somebody knows nothing about it then yes actually they might benefit from a workshop or something more formal where they're reading things outside of context of application but if someone knows all of that which in my experience is where most of our learners problems or performers problems come from, then we don't need to keep repeating that stuff. We need to think about how we help them perform better. And so the shift for me is absolutely a shift from thinking about how do people learn and what do we need to teach people and what do they need to know to thinking about how do people perform and what's stopping them and what do we need to help them to be able to do. And those two things are completely different. You know, I, I really love two areas that you've gone into deeper, and that's the idea that the closer we move the learning of the context of doing, and the more we allow it to happen there without hurting someone, the better that they'll be intrinsically motivated to want to learn and to do, and the better and quicker they will learn. Mm-hmm. And so starting from there and building back versus let's put them in a class for a couple of weeks first and then get them out in the field or whatever the right wording is, is a total flip. And I love your idea about the distance of the audience with which we do our analysis. This podcast has taken and many of you who have done a masterful job at, at making this shift, take a hard run at the traditional, if I may, SME world that so many of us are grounded in. And often the SME is removed from the work. Mm. They become the manager or the line manager or the manager of the manager because at one time they were such a good performer, we promoted them. But the reality is, to your point, that also removed them from the context of the work and their ability to represent it fairly Mm. and understand what truly happens there. How do you, let's let's shift a little bit, if you don't mind, Sam, to your work a bit. Mm. Because you still say you do get folks who come to you and I want five days of blah, 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 or I want two e-learnings because that's what I think I, you, I need or what you people do. Yeah. How have you changed that narrative as a company? When people come in to, to want your work, fundamentally, how do you guide them through that discussion? Because that's a question we get very often. Is, I'm seeing this way in my company. They walk in with a predisposed output. Mm. How do I even get them to get off of the outcome of five days of or three e-learnings on in the first place? How have you worked that narrative a bit differently in your work? So all of our, every single one of our projects, and this is in our kind of proposals to all clients, start with a, what we call a discovery process. Mm. What you've come to us with is a hypothesis. 
And one of the most valuable things that you can pay for our time for is for us to test that hypothesis before we ah, do. I love that. Love that. And common sense always says that if somebody is a senior leader who is two or three kind of rungs of the career ladder, if you like, away from the roles that they're talking about, are requesting yep. something, you can ask a simple question like, how much time have you spent over the last couple of weeks with these people and seen firsthand evidence of what you're talking about? You know, a lack of a lack of understanding of how to do X, Y, or Z. If the answer to that is, I spend every day with them and I've seen it firsthand, then okay, you you immediately know that this person has at least tr- actually gone down into the trenches and kind of seen some of it. So you can have a slightly different conversation. But fundamentally, all of our projects start, no matter how clear and simple and obvious sounding the problem and solution are, start with a discovery. I think the language, though, like I said, needs to be around testing your hypothesis. Yep. In this current climate, we can do a rapid hypothesis uh, uh, discovery process with the right people. We just need a little bit of your time to work out who those people need to be. You need to kind of oh, yeah. point them us in the right direction. We can spend a day or two days speaking to those people for limited amount of money and time and then tell you what you need. And if it was what you needed, that that process was still a worthwhile process because it potentially saved you a waste of money. In the current climate, that's a no-brainer for me. I always try and make it commercial, as commercial as I can. This person's going to spend money on something. A a really classic example is one of the clients I'm working with at the moment who we've built a really strong relationship with because of this approach, because we constantly tell them that we don't think they need the things that they were going to spend a load of money on with us, which (laughs) when I say that out loud, I... I start to worry about the kind of commerciality of my business, but still, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a relationship-based business. Of course, of course. But when we first met with them and we talked to them, it was after the first lockdown. And the first lockdown was the only reason that had stopped them from spending, I think it was seventeen or £18,000 on a management programme for a large-ish, but, you know, I think 15 or so managers in their organisation. And that was because the hypothesis was there's a handful of people here who are in management positions because the business has grown so rapidly over six to nine months that junior people who came in in kind of entry-level roles are now managing kind of quite large teams just because they know the business and they've grown with it, but they don't know how to manage. That's a great hypothesis, but what they hadn't done was tested to see whether... They all needed the same thing. Yep. They were all going to have the time and motivation to learn in in the same way, whether the course that that was being suggested was actually going to cover the things that they need. All of these things hadn't been kind of tested. So we came in and for the same amount of money near enough, introduced a whole load of different things from a you know some learning tech that provided them content in their moment of need and we could push things to them based on their challenges to real bite-sized kind of round table sessions, stand-up sessions where it was all done virtually, but it was for an hour on a particular subject that through our discovery, they all, as a blanket, needed support with. They were all terrified of giving feedback. This population of 20 people, when we spoke to them, all said, we hate giving feedback. We don't know how to give feedback well. It feels awkward, you know, in various forms, all agreed. So we had a session specifically on that. And that started them off just thinking about feedback differently but then we provided them with a load of resources from a template so they could literally plan how they're going to give feedback to somebody put it into their own words using this template to then deliver it 
to mini articles and like a four minute video that they could watch when they're just about to go and do it. For me, it's about we can give you so much more for possibly so much less. Yeah. We'll cater for all of the various different needs within that population of people you're talking about. So it makes total commercial sense that we'll do a bit of digging first. You wouldn't do any other piece of work without doing a bit of digging first. And look, that, that might work with some people. It might not with others. And like I said, I, I'm the first one, to be honest, even with this client where we've got this ethos and we're doing some great things with them. We've made the mistake recently and I was running hour long workshops for a kind of like first line manager populations. By the second one, I thought to myself, I've, I've, I've done a terrible job here. These people don't need this. This is a classic case of, but I trusted them. You can find yourself getting into work and projects and being halfway through them and thinking this isn't having any impact at all. But, but for me, it's just, that's a learning experience. That is just even more fuel for me to make sure that next time I get that similar request, that I really diagnose it properly and understand what the real problem is and don't just do a kind of half job. And I think that, that the other issue is that so many people ask a few kind of high level questions to the senior leader yep. and call that their analysis and don't yep. go down to the people who are actually kind of delivering the work that we're talking about. Well, you know, the, the reason you built such remarkable relationships is because you're pivoting on performance. We're back to how this podcast started. You take them down to the root cause of why they're in asking for five days of whatever or think a management course is the answer. But you get into before you invest all that, we call it rapid workflow analysis, but you know, same idea. A couple of days is to look, let's validate the root cause and be sure the deliverable is right. And then every deliverable, Sam, you mentioned pivoted out of a performance need, not a need to know need mm. or a why not give them all this extra stuff because they someday might need it or a, a successful manager who's been here for three years knows and does all the following things. Well, that's terrific. But we're talking to people who've never managed and are far from three years into their jobs. And so, but again, all the pivot was on performance. Mm. And then the resource you built mapped to the enablement of that performance. Sometimes it is knowledge, but often it's the act of performing. Even something as abstract, I hate the word soft skills, mm. as something like leadership, which, mm. which is ultimately judged by performance, not by anything a leader knows mm-hmm. you know, alone. You've done such a brilliant job. So my friend, looking back, Mm. Um, what advice would you give to somebody? And again, a lot of our participants in this are way early in the journey. They're struggling in making the mind shift. They're absolutely struggling in helping their company do the same. What is your advice to them to begin this? If you could go back to your younger self, Mm. what advice would you give to get where you are quicker, smoother, or clearer, if that's the right word? Yeah. So I think firstly is to address the lack of skills that I that I had. So much earlier on, read about performance analysis, tools, models, and you can you can you can learn a lot from. I mean, there are some brilliant people in our network who have kind of done all of the curating and things for us. So you've got people like Guy Wallace who yep. you can go to his website and see all of these great tools and resources and interviews of loads of different techniques that you can use there's a million and one out there that's a great resource you've got people like your podcast and I would say David James's learning absolutely they're all performance focused so just start immersing yourself in it and the thing I did was when I heard a 
name of a person that I'd not heard of before being talked about as this kind of legend of the, of the learning and development world. I went and researched what they'd done. And Joe Harless. Sure. Who's that dude? Went and yep. found out, was blown away by it, tried to use it, simplified it, experimented with it, spoke to people about it. And slowly but surely, that whole methodology has formed kind of underpins our discovery methodology we've used and adapted parts of that so first learn yourself and build the skills you've got but I think for me the biggest enabler to this is almost not be too pure about it I definitely got really hung up on and I've definitely I've lost business because I've been so hung up on only doing things that are performance focused good for you I think that especially if you're kind of trying to transition don't be too pure about it. Be okay and be comfortable with doing some things that, you know, maybe aren't that performance focused, but learn from them. Make sure yep. you're learning from them. You know, what would have actually helped that? And tagged on to that, the thing I have found which would be my biggest piece of advice is to, if you're trying to kind of shift people, other people's mindsets, and you're trying to get, you know, even if it's the rest of your learning and development team, because yep. that's probably as much of a challenge as the rest of the business, <laughs> to get them to start seeing differently from the workshops, the virtual workshops, the event-based learning, is to look at how do you supplement what you currently do. Yep. Everyone likes a shiny LMS full of content, full of articles and videos, it, because it's something you can shout about. And I, don't, I think it's going to be a real challenge to move away from that. But yep. there are things that you can do, like question which tool you use. Does the tool that you use allow you to push certain bits of content to people based on things that you know about them, like challenges that they might be going through? Can you push timely content out to people based on their particular moments of need? But also supplement it. So if you if you feel like you can't win that battle of not having the big, massive LMS yep. or the nine month leadership program, think about what you do in between the modules that are much more performance focused, get feedback from the people who are on it about which elements of the programs worked really well, because I can pretty much guarantee that they're going to say it's the things that really helped their performance yep. instead of yep. the two-day workshops. All of that will slowly but surely kind of build your case for doing uh, applying a more performance focused mindset in, in the future. Brilliant, my friend. It's a uh... You know, one of the great educators in my life once told me that although there will be revolutionary things in education, they'll only ever be adopted in an evolutionary way. Mm. And that's exactly what you're talking about, because there are two audiences to win over here. There may be three, but definitely, as you say, we as an industry, back to the first question I asked you, have to buy this. We have to believe in it. It has to be the first thing we reflectively or, or, or naturally default to. Um, not the things we do now. And then we have to believe in those deliverables in a way that we feel comfortable building them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, what has to follow along close to that, if not ultimately drive it, it's those we serve. Many people we interview on this podcast who come from enterprise L&D departments talk about how they see this light bulb go on once, to your point, those initial efforts, the small things you throw out there are adopted. When they come back for their next ask, they go, by the way, can you build 10 more of those things? And ultimately, the, the ask turns around to, look, can you build those things first? And, yeah. if, and if we have to, uh, yeah, we might put them in a, an hour workshop or something. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. Right? And I think the current environment that we find ourselves in has hopefully accelerated this for lots of people. Yeah. I, I think initially we just went, as an industry, we just went, okay, let's get really good at delivering workshops on Zoom or Teams or whatever right. you're using. 
but I think as our audience, as our customers have probably challenged back to say, you know, we're, we're getting sick and tired of this. It doesn't, it's not the same. It doesn't have the same shiny, glossy, happy sheet feeling as a, as a workshop. What else can we do? And I'm definitely finding more clients are going with, even if it's just curated online content that you can have a look at sure. yourself, replaces the workshop. For me, that's a move in the right direction. It, it's enabling people to access something in a time that works best for them. Well, my goodness, Sam, it's just been remarkable as always. So appreciate your leadership, your friendship, and being a part of this podcast. And we look forward to further conversations on the road. Everyone be well, and we look forward to our next episode. Thanks so much. Well, that's it for this episode of the 5 Moments of Need Performance Matters series. We look forward to future conversations around how to best put the 5 Moments of Need into practice. We welcome your feedback and can be reached on Twitter using my Twitter handle, at BMOSH, as well as our 5 Moments of Need website, which is www.5momentsofneed.com. We hope you're finding these helpful and will subscribe to future episodes. Have a great day, friends.